Let's turn to Daniel chapter 9. We're going to read verse 24 to verse 27. Verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us this morning, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would instruct us in the scriptures of truth, and show us who you are through them, Lord. Thank you that you've given to us your word and that your word is a light, as Peter says, that we do well to take heed to it as a light that shines in a dark place. So Lord, I pray that we would, in that, in obedience to your word, give heed to your word. And I pray that you would teach us through your Holy Spirit and glorify your name in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there was a couple celebrating their 50th anniversary. And this couple was known to have a very uh, happy marriage. Everyone who knew them looked at their marriage and says, that's an ideal marriage. For 50 years they've been married and it's been rosy all the way. This is definitely a happy couple, one that we all would, we would like to have a marriage like that. So at this 50th anniversary celebration, uh, some people gathered around them to interview them. And they asked them, what's the secret? What's the secret to your happy marriage? The husband, now an older man, replies, well, it all began on our honeymoon. On our honeymoon, my, my wife and I, we went to the Grand Canyon. And you know, at the Grand Canyon, it's a long trip and they often have pack mules. And so we were riding on these pack mules. We were riding through the Grand Canyon on our mules. And, and I noticed something that my wife's, when my wife's mule stumbled, she leaned over and spoke into the mule's ear. That's one. I thought that was strange. 
And so we kept going, and my wife's mule stumbled again. And my, my, my new bride leaned over into the, spoke into the mule's ear and said, that's two. So this is weird. And so we keep going, and then the pack mule stumbled again a third time, and my wife said to the mule in the ear, that's three. And then she pulled out a 357 Magnum and shot the mule in the head dead. I was taken back. What? I said to my wife, what did you do that for? You, you can't just go around shooting animals like that. That's a terrible thing. You did. What are you thinking? And my bride looked at me and pointed her finger and said, that's one. <laughs> well, that's not the secret to a happy marriage. But it does show us the power of the precedent we set by our behavior. And by seeing a person's actions, we see who that person is, and then we respond and relate to that person accordingly. A person's actions aren't, uh, aren't random. They come out of who the person is. And so because their actions reveal who they are, you know how to relate to them. And that's especially true of God, who never changes. Because human beings, we can change but God never changes. So all of God's actions that he does teaches us about him, and so we know who he is, and we relate to him, and we respond to him according, accordingly. God has done many things in the past, hasn't he? And it's by learning of his actions and of his ways in the past that we know who he is, and so we relate to him in the present, and we relate to him in the future. Now this shows us, it should be clear, the importance of what God has done in the past regarding this people Israel. Would you agree? I mean, that's, he's done a lot with them in the past, right? And so what we, what we see God doing with them teaches us about himself. What has God done with them? Has God done with Israel like that wife did with the pack mule? You know, that's one, that's two, that's three. Bam, you're dead, no more. <laughs> We're done with you. If that was the case, we would certainly learn something about God, wouldn't we? But throw in a few promises in there as well. The wife made no promises to the mule, but God made promises to Israel. And so if he were to shoot Israel dead and have nothing more to do with Israel, that would also show us something about God. And then we would respond to God accordingly, and we'd know, okay, here's a God who doesn't keep his promises, right? Or here's a God who just gets mad and punishes people, and that's the end of the story. So it's important how we understand God's actions in the past. Daniel's prayer in Daniel chapter 9 is appealing to the promises that God made to Israel. In verse 15 to 19 of chapter 9, Daniel appeals to God to act on behalf of his people. And he, just like Moses, he reminds God, you brought this people out of Egypt. You, made, you put your name upon them. You made a name for yourself in them. And Daniel appeals to the unique relationship that Israel and God share, and that God has set his name upon them forever. And so he asks God to act and to save and to deliver his people Israel in chapter 9. And yet, when we look at the prophecy that Gabriel brings to Daniel in chapter 9, 24 to 27, at a trivial glance, the answer looks bad, doesn't it? At a trivial glance, it seems like the prophecy is one announcing destruction, war, 
desolation. If you just look at it trivially, uh, superficially in verse 24, 25, 26, and 27, Messiah is cut off with nothing. The temple and the city will again be destroyed, according to verse 26. And in verse 27, there'll be abominations and lots of desolation. And so, at first glance, Gabriel's answer to Daniel seems bad, doesn't it? But if we think that, we're missing the point. Because this prophecy, this answer that Gabriel gives to Daniel, is actually good news. And this is a, this is a good news prophecy because of verse 24, where the angel says to, to Daniel, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. All of the longings of the Old Testament, everything that Israel as a nation, the religious ones at least, are looking for. And the, the, they're wanting Israel to be righteous. And they see the prophets are foretelling this time to come. Little did, does Israel realize, however, that all of these things are brought in through the death of the Messiah. So the prophecy is good news because hope lies in the end. Hope lies in the end. At the end of this 70-week figure, then all of these good things will be brought in for Israel. So yeah, a lot of bad things have to transpire in the meantime, but at the end of this 70 weeks, here comes all these good things. And it's brought in through the death of the Messiah, though they don't realize it. But there's a difference, brothers and sisters, between what brings in everlasting righteousness and when everlasting righteousness is brought in. There's a difference between what takes away our sins and when our sins are taken away. Would you agree with that? What takes away our sins? The Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, His death on the cross, that's what takes away our sins. What brings in everlasting righteousness? Jesus Christ, His death on the cross, His becoming sin for us, Him becoming unrighteousness for us, so that we could have righteousness through him and through his death and through his blood and through his life. So what brings in everlasting righteousness, what takes away our sin is Jesus Christ and his death. But when sins are taken away is when we believe in him. It would be wrong for us to say our sins are taken away when Jesus died, right? Because that's basically saying there's no... There's no need for faith. Once Jesus died, your sins are taken away. But that's not how, how it is at all, right? We come to Jesus by faith, and what he did for us then becomes ours. That blood then cleanses us from all sin, as John the Apostle says in 1 John. It's not law-keeping that takes away our sins and brings everlasting righteousness in. If it was law-keeping that did that, when would it... When would everlasting righteousness be brought in if it was law-keeping that accomplished that? that would, it would, everlasting righteousness would be brought in when we keep the law. That would be what it is and when it happens. When I keep the law, then I am righteous. 
But that will never be. You'll be waiting forever. But if it's Christ, then when? If we as Christians declare to the world, Jesus Christ has died for your sin, he's the one who can take away your sin, he's the one who can bring everlasting righteousness in, when can you receive this? When you believe. You can do so today. In fact, you're exhorted to believe and put your faith in him today. And when you do that, then it's been brought in for you. But what God is telling Daniel here is that 70 weeks have been appointed for Israel. And when that is accomplished, Israel will then have everlasting righteousness because Israel will then believe. God knows the future. God is telling Daniel when everlasting righteousness will be brought in. There will be an end to the indignation. It's not going to go on and on and on forever. Now, if it was up to Israel's works, it would. If it was up to our works to be righteous, the indignation against us would go on and on and on forever. But there's an end to it because it's not dependent on us, but it's dependent upon Christ and what he has done. And when this happens, God's name will be glorified. Charles Wesley wrote a remarkable hymn, and in that hymn he says, speaking of Israel's salvation, that all, speaking of all mankind, the God unknown may learn of Jews to adore and see thy glory in thy Son till time shall be no more. Charles Wesley basically is saying, all mankind will know the God of unknown for they will learn of Jews to adore him and see thy glory in thy son till time shall be no more. Now last week, I mentioned there are four major views that Christians should be aware of regarding this prophecy of chapter 9. The secularist view and the Jewish view we looked at last week. Christian 1, if you remember, and Christian 2. We're going to talk a little bit more about that today. The interesting thing, though, is that this passage really isn't that difficult. If you look at it, it's rather straightforward, 24, 25, 26, and 27. And yet there's all these different views. And the reason why there are all these different views, brothers and sisters, is not because it's such a hard passage, but it's because of the substance of this passage or the message of this prophecy. There's a lot at stake here in this prophecy. For the secularist, what's at stake is the denial of the supernatural. If the secularist were to read this prophecy and take it, at, take it in, a, in an exegetically natural way, they wouldn't be able to hold on to their presupposition that there's no such thing as the supernatural. The atheist would have to give up his atheism if he would just honestly look at this text. Or for the Jewish person, if they just took the text in the most exegetically natural way, they would be forced to admit that Jesus is the Messiah. And of course, that's something that would destroy their presupposition that he isn't the Messiah. And so they don't read it in the most natural way. They, they interpret it in a very odd way. Why? Because the passage is difficult? No, but because of the substance of this pa passage. And I believe also when it comes to the Christian's interpretation of this passage, there is an exegetically natural way to read this passage. But there are different views that Christians have on it. And the reason isn't because it's a difficult passage. It's because of what's at stake here. And what's at stake here 
is our understanding of Israel, as I've mentioned. Because Christians are quite divided on what they believe about the nation of Israel. And this prophecy, how you take it, will affect your presupposition. So, in order to understand this prophecy, we need to, one, evaluate our presuppositions. We need to constantly be doing that. And two, we need to stick with exegesis and find out what is the most natural interpretation of the text and stick to that. What is the text saying? Not what do I want it to say or what do I think it's saying. I mentioned that there are the two Christian views last week, and I'll mention them again just briefly. The, the, the view I called last week Christian 1 is the preterist view. And the preterist view is that this passage only refers to the first century. So everything Gabriel says here in verse 24, uh, 25, 26, and 27, it all has its fulfillment in the first century and not beyond the first century. The, the, the implication of that view is clear. If that's the case, then when Gabriel says that everlasting righteousness will be brought in, he didn't mean that it would be brought in for the nation of Israel. Because in the first century, brothers and sisters, the nation of Israel wasn't made righteous. So what the preterist will say is that, well, you've got to re-understand all that. You have, to, you have to think of it in a different way. Everlasting, is, everlasting righteousness is brought in, but not for the nation of Israel that we're all familiar with, but for something new. And God has, is doing a new thing now. He's, he's done with his dealings with Daniel's people and city, and what he's now doing is a new thing with the church, and many preterists will call the church the new Israel. So they might be able to say, yeah, uh, everlasting righteousness is brought in for Israel, but not the Israel that we all were used to. Something new. Now, the, the other Christian view, Christian 2, is the futurist view. And this view sees in this prophecy something beyond the first century. The futurist looks at this prophecy and says, yeah, this definitely takes us to the first century. It definitely points us to the first century, and we get there. But there's something more than that. There's a future desolation and salvation for the nation of Israel that we're all familiar with. That there, there's not some new paradigm in our understanding of Israel that we have to have. And so everlasting righteousness wasn't brought in for, for the nation of Israel in the first century. Therefore, we have to look to the future for this fulfillment. And the futurists will argue that if you take this in the most exegetically natural way, you're going to see that. So as I said, we need to go, we need, we're going to look at the text and see what is the most natural. We want the text to lead our views and our presuppositions. We don't want our presuppositions and our systems to lead the text. That's very important. And that's often what happens. We, we have our system already. And you know, it's, it's so easy not for us to evaluate our presuppositions. And this is not just true for Christians, but for all people. Because all of us are, we live in an environment, an intellectual environment, right? 
and it's just like air, and we breathe it in easy, and it seems natural. But it's just what everyone around us thinks. This is true for all of us. What we're, no matter where you are raised and what home you are raised in, we all are raised in a certain way, and there's an intellectual environment that we breathe in and breathe out, and it's just natural to us. And so to hear anything other than what we are raised with or used to, it's, it doesn't seem right at first. And so, but that's how everyone feels, brothers and sister, sisters. So we have to stop and think, is the intellectual environment that I was raised in, that I'm used to, is it right? What is the reason why that environment is there? What, what brought about this intellectual environment? What are the reasons? Because it hasn't always been like that. And not everyone has it. So we have to evaluate and say, what brought about this environment and is it right? Only then will we really be studying the Bible. I, brothers and sisters, as you know, am a futurist. I take the Christian two view. I believe that the most natural interpretation of this passage points not only to the first century, but also to the future, and that there's a future with Israel, and that we don't need to have a new paradigm for understanding that nation. This morning, I'm going to finish what I began last week. Last week, I began to look at this passage. We're going to finish this passage uh, looking at the futurist perspective of it. And we're going to take one more week next week, because I think this is really important. And we're going to look at the preterist perspective of this passage ne next week. So, verse 25 you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It, the city, will be built again with plaza and moat, even in distressing times or times of distress. Now, last week I argued that this decree, this issuing to rebuild Jerusalem was the Decree of Artaxerxes in 444 BC. Joyce Baldwin, in her commentary on Daniel, I think rightly points out that they're really, from Daniel's vantage point, when he was writing this, there's really only two decrees that are reasonable to consider, and that is Cyrus's decree for the Jews to go back to Jerusalem in 539 BC or Artaxerxes in 444 BC, because there are some other decrees that happened in between, but as B Joyce Baldwin points out and other commentators, those other ones that happen in between are basically just confirmations of Cyrus's original decree. So Cyrus gives a decree to rebuild the temple, and as they're doing that, there's a lot of confusion among the nations around Israel, and they appeal to the king of Persia, and the king of Persia gives a second uh, confirmation or a third confirmation of what Cyrus already said. The only decree that's qualitatively different than Cyrus's is Artaxerxes. And uh, Joyce Baldwin points out that the difference is that Cyrus commanded the Jews to go back and rebuild the temple, and only the temple. They can, you know, repopulate Jerusalem and all that, but they're not to build the walls. And it's very important that they don't build the walls. They didn't have permission to do that. And we're not to think that building a city equals building the walls. Because there's two different kinds of cities in the ancient world. There were unwalled cities that, that weren't as important as walled cities. Walled cities have power, have defense, 
and can cause all sorts of problems in your kingdom in those days. And so it's very clear when you read Ezra and Nehemiah that the walls were not permitted to be built until the command to Nehemiah by Artaxerxes in 444 BC when he gives him permission to go and to build the walls. There's a qualitative difference in that command and it's a really big deal. And so to restore Jerusalem to its former state of being a contender city, having walls, it requires the walls. Jerusalem wasn't glorious unless there were walls. That's why Nehemiah was distressed when he heard about a hundred years after Cyrus's command to go back and rebuild and uh, re repopulate Jerusalem. Nehemiah was distressed to hear of the city. The walls are all burned down. Now, if you look at the text in verse 25, this command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem is qualified by mention of the walls. In verse 25, at the end of the verse, it will be built, and here's the qualification, with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. There's the qualification. So the rebuilding of Jerusalem that I'm talking about, Daniel, Gabriel says, will be with the plaza and the moat. And as I mentioned last week, the moat is really referring to the walls. There is no water around Jerusalem with alligators in it, right? But uh, it's a difficult word to translate in Hebrew, but most scholars think it means a trench, something that is sharp and dug around the city. And if you've ever seen a picture of Jerusalem, it's kind of, it's on a sharp hill, part of their defenses. The most important Jewish translations of the Hebrew into Greek in the ancient world, the Septuagint and the Theodosian, they're not Christian translations, but Jewish translations of he the Old Testament from Hebrew to Greek, they actually translate plaza and moat as walls. That's how they translate it in the Greek. So if you read the Septuagint, it says, the city will be built with its walls, even in times of distress. Therefore, I argue and I conclude that the most reasonable starting point for the 70 weeks is the command to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem in 444 BC. And not any other command, Cyrus's or his confirmation or other confirmation commands, which didn't have anything to do with the restoring of Jerusalem to its former glory. Now, if you, as I argued last week, if you start in 444 BC and you go forward 69 weeks or 7 weeks and 62 weeks according to the text, which of course is 69 weeks, which, of, which is 843 years. If you go forward from 444 BC using a 360 day year, and I won't get into all that because I talked about that last, last week, but using the... the the 360-day year that the Hebrews would have been familiar with, and I believe even the Bible is familiar with, from Genesis through Revelation, you land squarely, precisely, amazingly, in the month that Jesus Christ was crucified. In fact, you land uh, not only just in the month, but in the part of the month where he was crucified. So you land precisely at his crucifixion week. And I argue with, with other scholars that, the, that the, uh, the termination point of the 69 weeks 
is actually the triumphal entry when Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem on a donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy, your king comes to you writhing on a donkey, having salvation. Look at what, what uh, Gabriel says in verse 26. Then after 62 weeks, and notice it says after 62 weeks, and that means that the crucifixion of Jesus is not a part of the 69 weeks, or the 7 weeks and 62 weeks. It follows it, which would fit nicely with the 69 weeks ending at the triumphal entry, and immediately after you have the crucifixion. After the 69 weeks, although it doesn't say how long after, the Messiah will be cut off, all Christians believe that this is referring to, uh, all conservative Christians, I should say, believe that this is referring to the death of Jesus Christ and his crucifixion. What an amazing prophecy. Even the Jews themselves, the conservative ones, not the liberal ones, acknowledge that this prophecy leads us to the first century and to the cutting off of an anointed one. They don't recognize it as Jesus, but they, they recognize this prophecy takes us, yeah, right to the first century, and we've got to look for some cutting off of an anointed one there. But God forbid it be Jesus. But here Daniel predicts not only the time that the Messiah will come, but also that he will be killed, a phenomenal prophecy. And then he goes on to say, not only will the Messiah be killed and have nothing, basically it seems like he has nothing to show for himself, and I, I would argue that's referring to his kingdom, It says here that the temple and the city will be destroyed again. Another thing that happened in the first century, which most uh, well, conservative Christians and conservative Jews all acknowledge, yeah, this prophet is predicting the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Wow, even the time of it. What an amazing prediction. You can see why there's a lot of controversy here and why secularists would want to get out of this because it so clearly shows the supernatural. I think that a person can't really deal with this text honestly and be an atheist. The city and the sanctuary will be destroyed. Its end will be with a flood. That's usually a, a metaphorical Hebraism that refers to troops, lots of troops overflowing their banks where God is the one who's in control of all the nations, right? And he sets their boundaries and says, thus far and no further. But sometimes he allows the waters to overflow their boundaries, and it's like a flood. That's how uh, the Bible thinks of invasions. These invasions aren't happenstance. They're God allowing the peoples to overflow their borders because God is the one who's in control of it. Now, I want you to notice in verse 26 an interesting phrase. After it says the Messiah will be cut, up and cut off and have nothing, just before it tells us the city and the sanctuary will be destroyed, it gives us a very important detail. It says here, And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Very important phrase. Now, ask yourself, according to the text, who destroys the city and the sanctuary? according to the text. According to the text, it isn't the prince that destroys the city and the sanctuary at all. It's the people of the prince. The text does not say the prince destroys the city and the sanctuary, but the people of the prince. The people of the prince. 
And here in the text, we're introduced to another figure, a new figure, this prince, this coming prince, whom, as I will argue, verse 27 is all about. Now, if verse 27 isn't all about this coming prince, then nothing is said about this prince in this text other than that a prince is coming. And we wouldn't have any more details of this prince. If you take the text in its most natural grammatical sense, and this is something that if you read the commentaries, most scholars are going to agree, including liberal scholars, okay? They're going to say, the he of verse 27 is most naturally, grammatically, in the Hebrew, the coming prince of verse 26. The new figure, someone we're introduced to here, actually isn't all that new. The renowned Old Testament scholar Carl Friedrich Kiel, he argues that we actually have some prior knowledge of this coming prince, and the way that it's phrased here in the text is almost that you should know about this individual. The prince that is to come, or the prince that is going to come, as if you would already be aware of this prince. And Kiel argues that this is the prince of Daniel chapter 7. If you remember in Daniel chapter 7, there's a little horn, this little horn, that will arise out of this fourth beast and will persecute the saints, trample them down for three and a half years, it says, for a time, times, and a half time, until finally God destroys him, right? And sets up the kingdom of God. Kiel argues that the coming prince of 926 is none other than the little horn of Daniel chapter 7. And I think, as we're going to see, there's a lot of confirmation to that point. We're going to see that. Not only do we see this prince or this little horn in chapter 7 or this individual in chapter 7, we also see him in chapter 8. When we were in chapter 8, I argued that that was also still future. That doesn't refer to Antiochus Epiphanes, but some future coming ruler in the last days. Verse 27. There are so many things in verse 27 that are paralleled not, with, not only with Daniel chapter 7. And this is the thing to notice, that in Daniel 9.27, these details resemble not only Daniel chapter 7, but lots of prophecies throughout the entire Bible. And we need to be able to see those resemblances, to see those parallels, and to not interpret Daniel 9.27 in isolation from those other ones. So basically, because the things that are mentioned in Daniel 27, Daniel 9.27 are also mentioned in other prophecies, whatever we think about Daniel 9.27 has to somehow correspond to what we think about those other prophecies in Scripture as well. They must be taken together. We would... We would not be interpreting well if we took it in isolation from the other ones that resemble the same thing. Now let's just ask, before we get into 27, who were the people that destroyed the city and the sanctuary? There's really only two answers we can give historically. Who were the people who destroyed the city and the sanctuary in 70 AD? And there's, there's two, two arguments that the scholars beat, beat each other up over. One is the Romans, 
The Romans were the people who destroyed the city and the sanctuary. And that seems, that seems self-evident and ob obvious on the surface. But other scholars will come along and say, yeah, it's true that it was the Roman Empire that did that. It's true that it was the Roman general that was leading the troops and doing that. And it was the Roman command. But historically, if you read Josephus, you'll realize that the troops that were under Titus's command were actually Syrian troops. So some scholars argue, yeah, it was the Roman Empire, but you've got to remember that the Roman Empire was peopled by all sorts of people. And the troops that actually took out the, the city and the temple were actually Syrians. And Syrians is a very broad term for people of that Middle Eastern area. And Josephus talks in depth about it, that Titus even said, don't destroy the temple, and, this, and his troops were destroying the temple, because Josephus says that the troops of Titus had this real deep-seated envy and hatred for Israel, and they wanted to see the temple destroyed. They weren't cool and calculated about what they were doing. They actually were really nasty in what they did. And when, they, when Israel, Israelite people were trying to flee from the city, they'd capture them, they would cut them open looking for the money that they swallowed. See, the Israelites would hide their money and try to get out, and these people would be ruthless with them. And Josephus says that among the troops, there was this ancient brotherly hostility, essentially. So I'm not going to say what I, which one it is, because I'm not really sure. But the thing to notice is that it's the people of the prince who is to come. And whoever those people are, whether they be Roman or whether they be Syrian, the prince is related to those people. Now, there's four th main things to notice in verse 27. There's four points here that Gabriel makes. First point is that at the beginning of the 70th week, so we've got 69 weeks accounted for, and there's only one week left to make it 70. And here it is. Daniel 9:27 is the 70th week of the prophecy. And the first thing to notice is that at the beginning of the 70th week, a firm covenant is made with the many for one week. A firm covenant is made with the many for one week. Another thing to notice is that in the middle of that week, verse 27 says, the sacrifices and offerings are stopped in the middle of the 70th week. The third thing to, to notice in verse 27 is that the abomination of desolation appears. Now, there's a, the Hebrew is really wordy, but when I was studying this and looking at all sorts of different commentators and translators taking of uh, this wordy sentence, which the New American Standard translates, on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. The, the best translation seems to be, on the wings of abominations he comes desolating. On the wings of abominations he, and the he would, would still be the one in view. He, the one who makes a covenant with many for one week, he, the one who puts a stop to the sacrifices in the middle of the week. And then there's this odd phrase, on the wings of abominations, he is coming, he comes desolating. He comes desolating. What does the word wings of abominations mean? It's a very odd phrase. And if you read the commentators on it, they all sort of don't know what this phrase means. What it seems to mean, what it probably means, is it conveys the sense of extremity. The word, it conveys the sense of extremity. The word abomination conveys the sense of idolatry. 
And what we've got here, the wings of abominations, probably is best understood as extreme idolatry or the extremity of idolatry. And he will come making desolate through this extreme abomination. We'll talk about that in just a moment. The fourth thing to notice in this text is that at the end of the week, the desolator will be destroyed. The desolator will be destroyed. So at the end of verse 27, it says, Even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate or who's causing the horror. So, all of this desolation is taking place, and then the very important word here is until. One of the most important words in prophecies is the word until. So, he's coming on the wings of abominations, he's making desolate, until a complete destruction, it's decreed destruction, until it is poured out on the one who is making desolate or on the desolator. So, those are the four things to notice. Number one, the covenant. The word in the Hebrew is very general. It doesn't necessarily mean a divine covenant. It's used throughout the Bible for any kind of covenant. For, yeah, the divine covenants that God makes, but also for covenants that just men make with men, like Abraham and Abimelech. Different people uh, making a treaty or covenant. So the word itself doesn't really tell us what this covenant is. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. The many, basically all scholars will agree, refers to Israel. The many are Israel or the majority of the people in Israel. Um, that's the most natural sense. And if you look at chapter 11 of Daniel and chapter 12, this phrase, the many, comes up again several times. And in those places, it's also referring to the majority of the people, Daniel's people. So he will make a covenant, this prince will make a covenant, which we don't know the nature of it, with the many for one week. Another thing to notice about this covenant is it's limited in its duration. It's limited in its duration. Now we don't know, does that mean that the covenant when they make that treaty, that they all know it's only going to be for one week? They kind of say, okay, we'll make a treaty for one week, we won't do this or we will do that. Or is it a covenant that they made indefinitely, but it just happened to only be in existence for one week. We don't know. But what we do know is that the covenant is limited in its duration. The futurist, when he interprets this passage, doesn't know what this covenant is. He can speculate about it. There's lots of speculation about it. Some say it seems like this little horn or this man of sin is going to make some sort of treaty with Israel in the future. We don't know. Is it related to the building of the temple? We don't know. It's total speculation. But what the futurist argues is that there is no other way to, there is nowhere else to place this but in the future, where this prince makes a covenant with the majority that is limited in duration. Secondly, in the middle of the week, the sacrifices stop. Now, this should remind us of other texts, right? This isn't the first time we've encountered this concept of the sacrifices and the offerings ceasing. 
You remember in Daniel chapter 8, verse 11, it talks about this desolator coming because of the sins of Israel. God is allowing a persecutor to come. And one of the things this persecutor does is he stops the sacrifices in the temple. Daniel chapter 8. If you turn with me to Daniel 11.31, you'll see the same thing. The resemblance should be obvious. Daniel 11.31, forces from him will arise. This is talking about a, a vile individual that will arise. And speaking of this vile individual, verse 31 says, forces from him will arise desecrate the sanctuary fortress and do away with the regular sacrifice and they will set up the abomination of desolation. So it's interesting that once again we encounter the taking away of the sacrifices in close proximity to the abomination of desolation. And look at chapter 12, verse 11. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,200 and 90 days. So again in Daniel we encounter this same phenomenon of the sacrifices coming to an end. And in all of them, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 11, and chapter 12, in all of them this is taken as a bad thing. This is taken as something that's not good. Something that a persecutor is doing. Something that is uh, a trampling of Israel where they long, for deliver they long for deliverance from. And it's not a coincidence that they're all right here. And so whatever we think of the, of the taking away of the sacrifice, we need to be able to take all of these things together. It would be wrong to take one of them and come up with some interpretation about it and take another one and come up with some totally different interpretation about it. You've got to be able to see it all together. If you, if you see in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, this happens in the middle of the week. Now, what's seven years cut in two? Three and a half. Three and a half plus three and a half is seven. So the final 70th week of Daniel, when cut in half, is, consists of two, three and a half years. Three and a half years is 1,260 days, the Bible tells us, which is equivalent according to the book of Revelation, to time, times, and a half time. So when you read the phrase time, times, and a half time, you should see that that's equivalent to 1,260 days, which is equivalent to 42 months, which is equivalent to three and a half years, which is equivalent to the half of the week. And so what that shows us is that we need to be able to take those things all together. That when the Bible in other prophecies outside of chapter 9 talk about time, times, and half time, do you remember where we ran into that, that phrase for the first time? Time, times, and half time, we ran into it in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 said that that little horn persecutor will be persecuting for a time, times, and half time. Da Daniel asks, how long will it be for the, for the saints to be given into the hand of this evil man? For a time, times, and a half time. Then it will be over. Then the evil man will be destroyed. And the kingdom of God will be given to the saints. And look at Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12 and verse uh, 7. Daniel asked, how long will it be? Or an angel asked another angel. I heard a man dressed in linen, 
who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven. Pretty important, the sense you get from verse 7. He swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times and a half time. The same figure we met in Daniel 7, which means that whatever we think about Daniel 7, we, should, we need to be able to explain it in the context of Daniel 12. And as we're seeing, these prophecies are all intertwined together. And when you get to the book of Revelation, the apostle John hasn't left this. And he talks about 1,260 days, and he talks about a time, times in half time, and he talks about a persecutor who's going to come as well. And so the futurist sees that and argues, wow, John in Revelation is talking about the same thing as Daniel. He's just giving more information. Should be clear. The abomination of desolation is the third thing I mentioned. Now, this should be interesting to us as Christians, especially. Whenever we read about the abomination of desolation being set up, or the extremity of abominations, this should be interesting to us. Why? Because Jesus, our Lord, spoke about this. This isn't just some off-the-wall phrase in the Old Testament prophets that wacky Christians get interested in. This is something that Jesus Christ was interested in. In fact, Jesus Christ said to his disciples that that is the sign of the end of the age when you see the abomination of desolation. So it should interest all of us as Christians, what is this abomination of desolation? And let's be very clear on this. Jesus knew of no abomination of desolation but, but the one that Daniel spoke about, right? Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of by the prophet Daniel. So in Jesus' mind, the abomination of desolation is the one that Daniel spoke about, and that's the sign of the end of the age. There is no other abomination of desolation that Jesus knows about. Jesus tells us, when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, very clear what Jesus means when he said that. Standing in the temple, which is what the holy place is, then you know it's the end of the age and it's time to get out of Jerusalem when you see that. It's interesting that the Septuagint translates Daniel 9, 27, on the wings of abominations will come who makes desolate. The Septuagint translation, which is the Jewish translation of Hebrew into Greek, predating Jesus, translates this phrase as on the temple shall be the abomination of desolation. Daniel chapter 9, 27, understood by those translators, on the temple will be the abomination of desolation. That sounds just like what Jesus said. And it's important to see that in Jesus' day, the Jewish people in his day, the intellectual atmosphere in Jesus' day, was that the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel had already happened. It had happened in their mind in the time of the Maccabees, when Antiochus Epiphanes, this nasty ruler who resembles the book of Daniel, and they all saw that and they said, wow, Daniel's prophecy has been fulfilled because look, Antiochus is this nasty little horn ruler who's trampling the saints, persecuting, everything's very literal, isn't it? And he literally 
stops the sacrifices in the temple, and he literally sets up an idol in the temple to a false god. That's the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel. That was what Jews in Jesus' day thought. If you read the book of Maccabees, they are very clear on that. They connect it with Daniel, and they say, Antiochus did this. And the important thing to see, Jesus doesn't correct their idea of what the abomination of desolation is. Does he? Jesus doesn't say, you guys have your conception of the abomination of desolation wrong. You have your, 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 you're tying it in with Antiochus. And Jesus never once corrected their idea of the abomination of desolation and what's involved in all that. What he corrected was the timing of it. And Jesus says, no, you're wrong. It, it wasn't at the time of Antiochus. You shall yet see it standing in the holy place. He doesn't correct their idea of it, but the timing of it. He doesn't challenge their understanding of what that's going to look like. It will be idolatry in extreme form done by the coming prince. The Apostle Paul actually quotes Daniel chapter 11, verse 36. Daniel eleven thirty six. he quotes it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And there, Paul the Apostle says, The day of the Lord will not come until first the man of sin comes, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, and he sets himself up in the temple of God, proclaiming that he is God. Don't you know that when I was with you, I told you these things? He's quoting Daniel 11.36, which we already have seen has a relationship with Daniel 9.27. And to Paul, it's a man of sin in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. That's idolatry, a rather extreme form. John, the apostle in the book of Revelation, speaks of the entire world worshiping a beast for three and a half years, doesn't he? John, the apostle, is not writing something that is just coincidentally similar to all of this. It's not a coincidence, and it's no wonder that the early church looked for that. The early church looked for a coming man of sin and a coming abomination of desolation, like the incident of Antiochus in Jerusalem. Jesus said, when you see this, you're to flee. You're to get out of Jerusalem. Because then, he said, will be great tribulation in Matthew 24. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, standing in the holy place, get out of Jerusalem because then there's going to be great tribulation such as there's never been in the entire world nor ever will be. And it will be a short time, Jesus said. Now look at Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Jesus is alluding to Daniel 12. Jesus is alluding to Daniel 12. He says, at that time, at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Jesus is alluding to this when he says, there's going to be a time of distress like there's never been. And what's the context? The vile individual, the abomination of desolation, the taking away of the sacrifice, the great tribulation, and then salvation 
as we're going to see when we get to these chapters. It is the sign of the end of the age, the abomination of desolation. So all of these things must be taken together. The last thing in verse 27 to notice is that the desolator comes desolating until. That means the desolator's desolating is limited, it's determined by God, and it says in Daniel 9.27, until a complete destruction is poured out on him. Until a complete destruction is poured out on him. And that's the end, because once the desolator is destroyed, there's no more desolating. The desolation is gone, because the indignation is gone. And why is the indignation gone? The indignation upon Israel is gone, and therefore Israel's persecutor is gone, because the 70 weeks are over. And when the 70 weeks are over, all of the Old Testament longing is fulfilled. The finishing of sin, the making atonement for iniquity, and the bringing in of everlasting righteousness takes place at the end of that 70-week period. And when Israel then is righteous, the indignation is gone, and the persecutor of God gets destroyed. This is what we see in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8, Daniel chapter 11 and 12 in the book of Revelation. That this desolator has an appointed short time to do his desolating because of the sins of Israel. And then all of those prophecies speak of the destruction of the desolator. And the New Testament as well speaks about that. When Paul talks about the man of sin standing in the temple proclaiming himself to be God, he tells us that when Jesus returns in his brightness, he will slay him with the breath of his mouth. The man of sin's career, or the coming prince's career, is extremely temporary. It's short, but it is intense. Now the futurist argues none of these things have happened. The details of all the related visions that relate to this haven't happened. And the bringing in of everlasting righteousness for Israel hasn't happened and didn't happen in the first century unless we, have a, unless we introduce a new paradigm to think about Israel. But where do we find that paradigm taught in the Bible, the futurist asks. This, therefore, in the futurist understanding of the prophecy of the 70 weeks, places a gap between the 69th week and the 70th, as you've probably noticed. The 69 weeks brings us to the first century, but the, 70 week, the 70th week doesn't follow on its heels. And for many people, that's very strange. And who's going to argue it is, isn't strange? It is strange. Just because it's strange doesn't mean it's, it's not true. When you take these considerations in, there's no other conclusion. Robert Culver says this about the gap. These considerations show that the idea of a gap in the weeks at this point is a matter of exegesis, is a matter of exegesis, period. Considerations of theology are not primarily involved. That is, if you take the text in its most natural sense, you would have to see that the abomination, uh, the 70th week has not occurred yet. If you want to exegetically prove no gap, you have to deal with 
all of these considerations, all of the details of all these different prophecies, and explain how we should think about Israel with a new paradigm. Robert Gundry writes this, the possibility of a gap between the 69th and the 70th week is established by the well-accepted Old Testament phenomenon of prophetic perspective, in which gaps such as that, begin, that between the first and the second advents were not perceived. So the Bible prophesies about the coming of Jesus Christ, but it's not always, it's almost never clear that there's going to be a long period of time between his first coming and his second coming, even though the prophecy says he'll come and we're able to even see fulfillment in the first century, but the, the rest of the prophecy, we don't have fulfillment of it. So it's because of this mystery of the two comings of Christ that we don't always perceive this. The 69 weeks were marked from X to Y, from the going forth of the command to rebuild Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, there will be 69 weeks. So it's very clearly marked when that will be. But the 70th week is not marked at all in this text. It doesn't say from this period to that period there'll be 70 weeks, except it says from the firm covenant that's made to the destruction of the desolator. And when did that take place is the question. If you look for it, the futurist argues you've not yet found it. We've not yet seen it. The 20 verse, the promises of Verse 24, haven't been brought in. God has indeed determined 70 weeks, or cut them out, more literally in the Hebrew. Cut them out of history. But the last week is in his keeping. And we wait for its fulfillment. Now, I'd like to close by asking, why? Why is all this taking place? So many prophecies talk about this great tribulation, three and a half years, little horn man of sin desecrating and trampling and causing havoc in the world in the extremity of, of idolatry and the world following after this individual and worshiping him. Why? Has Satan gotten loose from God's control? Is this Satan wiggling out of the, the bounds of God and going against God's will and running amok? And God's Satan go. Not at all. Because as we know, Satan is God's instrument of his indignation. And God is in control of all things. God is in control of all these crazy things that we're reading about in the Bible and that we do read about. And though all of these things are bad, all of these things don't look good for Daniel and his people, Gabriel's message is not a bad message. It's a good one. It's good news because what Gabriel is essentially saying to Daniel, he's not essentially saying to Daniel, you know, all this bad stuff's going to come on your people. That would be to miss Gabriel's message. But what Gabriel is essentially saying to Daniel is that there is an end of the indignation. There is a time that God has ordained and decreed and cut out. There is an appointed time when your people and your city that you're praying for and that you're longing for will be forgiven and will be righteous and will be saved from all their enemies, just as the prophets have foretold and just as you're longing for. 
That's the, that's the essence of this prophecy. There's a time coming that God has ordained when all of these good things are going to come. And yes, there's all this bad stuff that's going to come in between. But the end will be good. The end will be gracious. The end, God will be true to his promises. Daniel, of course, would have been greatly pained to hear of all those horrible desolations that are coming upon his people still in the future, even worse than the Babylonian captivity. But Daniel would have been glad to hear this prophecy that God will act justly. He knows God will act justly in the desolations, but God will also act justly and keep his word of salvation to his people and to his city. Daniel would therefore have been encouraged, though sad, by this prophecy. And after this time, Israel will be saved through nothing other than faith in Jesus Christ. And what brings ever, in everlasting righteousness? The death of their Messiah who is cut off after the 69th week for the sins of that nation and the sins of the world. Everlasting righteousness will then be brought in for the believing nation in fulfillment of God's promise and to the public showing off of God's glory in Jesus Christ. And at that time, the Bible says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Something that has not yet occurred. All these wonderful things the Bible talks about will occur when Jesus returns. Jesus told us immediately after the tribulation of those days, the Son of Man will come on the clouds of heaven and gather his elect from the four corners of the earth. So Jesus' return is what's going to come right after these 70 weeks. Jesus will come and reign as king and execute justice in the earth. Men will beat their swords into plowshares and learn war no more. Those in Christ will rise incorruptible from the dead. How exciting is that? No more pain, no more death, no more sorrow, no more distance between us and God in a physical way. But only the manifest fruit of righteousness. Because we are righteous, we will be blessed in a manifest way. And it won't remain a hidden thing forever. The Bible says that Satan will be bound and we will be with the one that we love and the one who loves us, never to be separated again. And brothers and sisters, if that doesn't get you excited, I don't know what will get you excited. I don't want to see the world at peace. I don't want to be with Jesus physically. That doesn't excite me. I don't want there to be no more curse. God has a blessing for us, a manifest one in Jesus Christ, and he's coming to bring it, and we will be with the one who loves us forever. I'd like to just close with these words of a poem. How will our eyes to see his face delight? whose love has cheered us through the darksome night. How will our ears drink in his well-known voice, whose faintest whispers make our soul rejoice? No strain within, 
no foes or snares around, no jarring notes shall their discordant sound. All pure without, all pure within the breast, no thorns to wound, no toil to mar our rest. If here on earth the thoughts of Jesus' love lift our poor heart, this weary world above, if even here the taste of heavenly springs so cheers the spirit that the pilgrim sings, what will the sunshine of his glory prove? What the unmingled fullness of his love? What hallelujahs will his presence raise? What but one loud eternal burst of praise? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your promises and your covenants and your determined plan that in your mighty wisdom you have cut out for this world. We thank you for dying to take away our sins and to bring in everlasting righteousness so that we could be blessed. And Lord, we, we pray that you would continue to give us wisdom and understanding and the knowledge of you, that we'd, we would be taught by you to understand your world that you made, to understand your ways, to understand the riches that we have in Christ and to, to see life as you see it. And we pray that you would teach us all of these, these deep mysteries in your word, Lord, so that we could see and understand like Daniel understood and we could rejoice and have hope for this darksome hour as we look forward to the bright coming of your Son. And we do long for your coming, Lord, and we pray, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. We are excited for the fulfillment of your word and the bringing in of the, the age of righteousness and blessing. Father, thank you for this time this morning to look at your scripture. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.